This week on Crossing Crown Radio, a special episode from my talk at the Faith and Medicine Conference in Atlanta, Georgia, this past February 2022. I had the opportunity to attend the conference and fill in for my friend Martin Selbridi, and the title of my talk was called Health for All of Life, Bridging the Gap Between Spiritual and Medical Health. I hope you find it edifying and encouraging. And once again, thank you for listening and tuning in to Cross Crown Radio. Well, let's begin in prayer. A gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful to you for your goodness, your faithfulness, your eternal redeeming love. Thank you for blessing us this, this day and feeding us so abundantly spiritually and physically. We are dependent upon you for all things. And we pray that you would open our eyes, enlighten our minds, uh, encourage our hearts, and, and motivate and enable us to live out the truths that we hear. We thank you in your son's name. Amen. So our next presentation is, was because of a forward to the book called Health for All of Life written by Pastor Jason Garwood. The foreword was written by Martin Selbridi, who's quite a scholar and a writer. He is the vice president of the Chalcedon Foundation and serves as the editor of their magazine, A Faith for All of Life. The foreword is so concise and so excellent. And by the way, the, the subtitle of this book is A Medical Manifesto of Hope and healing for the nations. Martin's forwards, forward was excellent and concise, and immediately I knew that I should ask Martin to speak at this conference. Now, by the way, the book was inspired by a website of a similar name, Health for All of Life, and that website was designed by one of our conference attendees, Jack Garwood, who's a pastor, missionary, he's also a discipler, and he's a mentor. And I encourage you to find him and spend some time with him and visit the website, Health for All of Life. Martin is recovering from a a virus that we've heard about the last year or two, so he is not with us today. But in God's good providence, the pastor of this book, Jason Garwood, is with us. So with that, Jason, please come present. Thank you, Dr. Bergeron. It is very, very good to be with you all here today. Um, Interestingly enough, my son and I drove 10 hours from Northern Virginia yesterday and I was disappointed to find out that your weather down here was much, much, much worse. So there's that. Being from Michigan, I'm used to it. I don't like it, but I'm certainly used to it. And uh, I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Isaiah chapter 51. And we're going to also go to Colossians 1. So I'm a pastor, and I have a habit of just, let's go to the Bible. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But... Um, I'm happy to be here with brothers and sisters in Christ, and my standing here before you is kind of an unfortunate pleasantry, we might say. Um, As Dr. Bergeron mentioned, Martin Sabridi was supposed to be here giving a talk with the same title, Health for All of Life, Bridging the Gap Between Spiritual and Medical Health, and we certainly pray for him, pray that his uh, infirmity would dissipate and leave him. Uh, So that's the unfortunate part. It's unfortunate that I'm here. I had texted Martin and said, uh, you know, I would much rather the scenario of you being here because I hadn't seen him in a few years and I would have loved to catch up with him. But Providence says otherwise. Now, the pleasantry aspect stems from the fact that Martin is a dear friend and he is an incredible mind. Uh, He is in every respect a co-laborer in the gospel of the kingdom. So to fill his shoes is really an impossible task So rather than doing so, I'm going to just steal his title, which he stole from me first, which I stole from missionary Jack Campbell sitting up here in the front. Uh, So we're just, we're sharing, I guess we'll call it. 
Uh, but I'm going to give it my own go, of course, and that, of course, seems pleasant to me. Now, I hasten to, to add that you should be listening to Martin's work at the Chalcedon Foundation, learning from him. Uh, be sure to check out their work at chalcedon.edu, and do visit the wonderful selection of books that are there with the Chalcedon book table. Some of my books are there uh, next to theirs, so yours truly would be happy for you to patron those as well. Now, to give you some context for those who don't know, it was kind of already alluded to, but Martin read, uh, wrote the foreword to my book, Health for All of Life, a medical manifesto of hope and healing for the nations. And the backstory to that is this. In the fall of 2019, I was commissioned by my friends Bill Evans and Jack Campbell, who I mentioned here. And the commission was, take the website, healthforalloflife.com, and turn that thing into a book. And I thought, that's impossible. No, thank you. But we did anyway. And missionary Jack here is uh, really to be credited for all of these things. He's ordained in the PCA does incredible work in this area with students from international students at Clemson University. And long before I ever even knew Jack and ever talked to him on the phone, he was busy putting forth these concepts in the book, so he is certainly to be commended. But at any rate, uh, being commissioned to write the book, I naturally went into research mode for many months, trying to learn even more about the various approaches to natural or holistic health, learning from men like Chris Wark, who was instrumental, very instrumental, I told him that earlier, in bringing healing into our home, helping my wife defeat Lyme disease and so on, uh, but also learning from men like Dr. Joel Wallach, Dr. Jerry Tennant, and a slew of others. And I had probably read 5,000 pages of material and watched hours upon hours of YouTube lectures, and uh, which is all to say, by the way, it takes a lot of work. As Chris mentioned, there are some things you can do today but there are a lot of things long-term that you need to consider as well. And if you want to take control over your own health as a foremost principle of self-government, it does take some, it takes hard work. You simply must know how to nutrify, detoxify, and energize the body. That's the health triad. Nutrify, detoxify, and energize the body. You can learn the seven cell-building essentials that work together and make up those three things, the health triad. And when you get those down, you're on your way. Now, my family and I had already been, as I mentioned, on a journey with her Lyme disease, and that had led us to major changes in how we would eat, how we would live, the things we would do, and she conquered that, we thank God. So for a lot of, you know, for the past maybe five or six years, we've already had the orthopraxy part down in that we had upended everything that we knew about food and medicine. However, we needed to get the orthodoxy part right and get that connected to it. So during my research and writing and sort of looking at these things, there were questions that started to pop up. Should we have a theology of health? Does that even make any bit of sense? How could the Bible have anything to say about this quandary? And I had already embraced a faith for all of life, and I had already been involved in the medical freedom movement even before covid and helping parents secure exemptions from the CDC schedule that they believed to be were unhelpful. So I just needed to put two and two together. And eventually the book was done. I could breathe again. But Health for All of Life, the book, the website, it's an attempt to answer the question that I have before me today. How do we bridge the gap between spiritual health and physical health? So that's a little bit of the backstory, And just kind of you know, a get to, get to know each other moment for a second. Now, I do find it very intriguing. I don't think you can see it on the screen, but did you pay attention to the name of this conference? I think it's very, very intriguing. It's very, very telling. It says, Faith and Medicine. The audacity, right? Not to insult anyone's intelligence here or anyone online, but there's a conjunction in the middle there. Did you notice it? That word and tells us quite a bit, does it not? I mean, conjunctional phraseology is dangerous business. You had no idea, did you? And I think that is an audacious claim. Faith and medicine? Who would dare to bring such things together like this? Aren't they separate? What does Jerusalem have to do with Johns Hopkins? Is it like peanut butter and jelly, right? The both of which make the sandwich much better. 
Well, yes, yes it is. And permit me a a moment to explain. We're going to dive into some philosophy this afternoon. I figured we've covered everything else. I'll do the philosophy part, okay? Um, Just just so we're, I mean, we've had, you know, uh, uh, brain doctors and pediatricians and all, you know, allergy medicine and all these different things. I'll just do the theology and philosophy, and I'm glad you agree. Now, by the way, does anybody here uh, really like philosophy? If you could raise your hands for me. Okay, so I guess the rest of you like foolishness then. (laughs) Philosophy means love of wisdom, right? And last time I checked, Proverbs 1 says that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. That's the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and shame on the rest of you. Philosophy time. Let us suppose for a moment... Join me on this journey that a young, rather obstreperous philosophy student from Georgia State University walked right into this very room. He is not favorable to the Christian faith, not even a little bit. And uh, we could note that he has Aristotle tattooed on his arm, and uh, that'll tell you everything you need to know about him. And he walks in, and he just pauses for a moment, and he looks around, and he tries to figure out what in the world are we doing here. He's aghast, absolutely horrified by you people, and me too. This young man, we'll call him a humanist, humanist Joe. No offense if your name's Joe, Joseph. He's disturbed by what he finds. He reaches his conclusion. You cannot conflate faith and medicine. I am offended by such heuristics. People should just blindly do whatever the state tells them. And this is where it gets fun, because he's a philosophy student. This is an unresolvable dialectical tension. And I am outraged. He exclaims rather emphatically, We might say that we have struck a nerve with this young Aristotelian, and why is that? Does he have a point? Cornelius Van Til, huge fan here, he has taught us that all unbiblical thought is inherently dialectical. All unbiblical thought is inherently dialectical, meaning that whatever premise one chooses that is not the God of the Bible and it could be Plato's ideals, or it could be Aristotle and his substances and he, as he works out his metaphysics and so on. But whatever you choose that's not the God of the Bible, either way, there are going to be inherently contradictory, inherently irreconcilable poles or opposites which cannot be solved, they can't be synthesized. That's what the Greeks dealt with, right? So simply put, starting from a humanist perspective, you can't put faith and medicine together in any conjunctional sense. You just can't do it. And stick with me. Again, a little more theology, a little more philosophy. When, when This is kind of my presupposition here, what I'm working with, biblical categories. When one rejects the distinction between the true and living God, Van Til would walk into the classroom and draw a circle on the chalkboard and then draw a smaller circle underneath and he would connect the lines and and uh, John Frame tells us a little bit about that story and he would walk in and say these lines are the covenant right God is distinct he's transcendent he's different from creation but here's the created order this is where we are and then God's covenant is sort of in the middle and that's how this works you have the living true creator of the universe here and the created order So when you reject that paradigm, when you throw all those presuppositions out of the window, here's what you reject. First, she rejects the creation word. Three words you reject. You reject the creation word when the Logos of God brought all things as a vehicle of the Father's word into existence. Second, so creation word. Second, she rejects the incarnate word. That is the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh and dwelt among us in this very real, non-simulating world. This very real, non-simulation, non-matrix world. Material world, we can add. Third, so you, you rejected the creation word, you rejected the incarnate word, and third, she rejects the inscripturated word. That is, the infallible, inerrant, and inspired authority of the triune God brought to us 
by the Holy Spirit, which is our standard, by the way, for all philosophizing, all of our talk of health and healing, all of life. If you don't start there, you're done. Now, what I'm putting forth this afternoon is this. The, crea- the Christian world and life view is the only possible way to bridge this gap, the gap between spiritual health and physical health or material health or med- medical health, if you will. The Christian world and life view is the only solution and the only possible way to bridge this gap. In fact, in the Christian view, there is no gap between faith and medicine. And there's no gap between spiritual health and physical or medical health. And I'm going to explain why. The reason the young Aristotelian thinks that we shouldn't put faith and medicine together, and the reason many Christians have unfortunately adopted Greek metaphysics as their own presuppositions, is because faith has to do with intangible things, and medicine has to do with material things. Right? Faith is intangible. You can't go to the store and buy a pound of faith. But medicine, you, you can. You can go to the store and find something, right? So you, you, in his mind, you can't get those things together. Now, take the example that Francis Schaeffer would often use. Imagine a two-story house. In Plato, he, he was an idealist. The upper story of the house, the second floor of the house, was the ideal. And the ideal was the perfection of everything, the perfection of all, of all things. In the lower, lower story, that's called the receptacle in, in Platonic thought, that's simply the imperfect copies of the perfect ideals that are upstairs that we experience every day. So this table is, is a copy of the greater ideal that's you know perfection, whatever table is in this mindset of his. And we can't go to that blissful ideal. This is why platonic dualism is such a problem in evangelicalism today, but you can't go to that ideal. We, we put heaven sort of up there and out there, and then the world just you know gets to burn. But Socrates, of course, he was quite happy with the idea that whenever he's facing his death, he's going to go there. He, he was quite happy about that. But all we experience, though, in life is viewed as this bottom floor, this downstairs. And this duality, that's what um, Pastor Deerham was getting at yesterday when he mentioned this. This duality is what drives most people today. We're down here. God's up there. It's not like I have the living God present in me. So we live within this false duality. The faith is sort of up there, but the medicine is down here. In Aristotle's thought, moving on to him, the upper story, he called it actuality. That is pure perfection upstairs with no potentiality. And, and, and for Aristotle, the, the great extreme of that was Aristotle's God, right? Pure actuality and being in existence, but no potentiality, immovable mover. Not the God of the Bible, to clarify. But then the lower story was what he called potentiality or pure potentiality, possibility of a succession of being and change in the world and so on. And, but, but there's no actuality. And what is something that is pure potential, potentiality but it doesn't even exist? The answer is nothing, Right? So that's Aristotle's dialectic. He's got problems in viewing the world. That's the sliding scale of being. Those are the poles. Those are the dialectics. Those are the tension points. And all of life for us is this experience and this scale between the poles. And we're sort of like in the house stuck in the staircase. And we can kind of peek upstairs. And we can kind of peek downstairs. But we can't go to either one. So that's what I mean by dialectic, and that's what philosophers mean by dialectic. There's a tension that can't be resolved by mere intellectualism or rationalism. We, we can't just make it the way we want it to be. We can't just go wherever we want. By the way, that's why time travel is impossible. You live in this moment, and it, you, you don't have successive states of being in the past. You can't go back to that. But that's a different talk, maybe next year. 
So we're not infinite beings. And not only are we not infinite beings, we are finite, very finite beings. And there's a law that prevents us from doing whatever we want, even with our minds. Now, fast forward to the Middle Ages, thanks to Thomas Aquinas, who essentially tried to Christianize Aristotle's thinking. This gave us a new formulation, kind of a new house, a new renovation of this two-story house. The upper story was grace. The lower story was nature. Upstairs is grace. The lower story is nature. In the modern Western world, which has become totally engulfed in totalitarian politics, which I'm sure you can attest to, hampers and handcuffs our attempts at bringing healing to image of God bearers. But the Western world engulfed in totalitarian politics, the lower story is the all-encompassing state, while the upper story is the church or faith. And that's why some pastors foolishly tell you not to look downstairs and get too excited about politics. Stay in your room. And this is also why there are status controls on health care, because health is situated downstairs, and you don't get totalitarianism without the total, health included. In other words, this gap that I'm supposed to solve, that's the topic to this afternoon, it's indicated in the title, the gap between spiritual health and medical health is inexorably difficult, borderline impossible quandary for mere mortals. We, however, have God's self-attesting revelation. We have his creation word. We have the incarnate word who took on flesh and dwelt among us. That changes everything. Those three things destroy any pagan worldview. And the reason this is the case is because for so long we have not sought to apply the comprehensive gospel of the kingdom, which situates, by the way, the rule and reign of Christ as a present reality within the context of the entire house. The Protestant uh, Reformation, which as Stephen Burks points out, really wasn't even a Reformation, it was an exit. There wasn't much re Reformation that happened in terms of sticking within the Catholic Church, but... Nonetheless, the Reformation captured many different aspects of all of this as quite literally Calvinism itself gave us a ton of social categories to work with. I'll explain what I mean, but thanks to Geneva, we saw a resurgence in things like education, welfare, common law, uh, limited government, things like the holy calling of all vocations. You're never just any um, stay-at-home moms here. You're not just a stay-at-home mom. You are in charge of a soul that's going to exist forever, and you are sharpening those arrows so that they can go and strike at the heart of the accuser. So the, the Puritan work ethic came out of Geneva. Um, art, beautiful art, not the Renaissance trash that we get to see from humanism. The free press, publishing ideas, putting them out there into the world, and so on. That's what the Protestant Reformation gave us. Hospitals began when Christians started to take seriously their calling as priests and kings in the world, bringing healing to the nations, Revelation 22.2 says. So Jesus himself, remember, he gained quite an audience by simply meeting people's needs. If only we would dare to follow him in his way, in that way. See, when we try to bifurcate the holy calling we have as priests and kings in service to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's no wonder that we have a problem trying to bridge this gap. If medicine is down in the lower story of the house, which is to be controlled by bureaucrats and politicians with yacht-sized stock portfolios, and the upper story is where we gather in our minds to worship Jesus, only up there, though, and we wonder why we have rampant disease and rampant sickness with no end in sight it seems like and I don't believe that God has granted the human estate control over what belongs to you and your family but until and, and by the way past two years this didn't just drop out of nowhere this stuff has been happening for a long time we're just reaping the fruit now oh shoot that tree we planted is really ugly why is it not giving us apples? What is that hideous thing growing on the branch? That's the humanist tree. 
But until we recapture this gospel of the kingdom, the totality of Christ's lordship over all things, and until we take responsibility for the health and well-being of ourselves, assisting our neighbors like the Good Samaritan should the need arise, and stop leaving it up to the whims of the humanist nanny state, and until we do that, we're not going to experience the covenantal blessings God has to offer us, the blessings we read of which in places like Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, which means repentance is in order. We have a tremendous task before us. I'm going to rip off, riff off a, another book that I enjoy. But the task before us is this. We have scriptural religion and the medical task. Bridging this gap is going to have to, it's going to require us to be thinking about certain biblical categories, putting those things in place, and that's what we're going to do next. Look at Isaiah 51. Long introduction, but we finally made it. The Bible gives us several principles to work with. I outline a, a, a ton of those in the book. They're on the website too. Um, as Missionary Jack has put a ton of content on there, but I, I kind of have a few that I want to work with that really aren't necessarily there. But in Isaiah 51 verse 1, we read this, and I'm reading out of the New Legacy Standard Bible. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek Yahweh. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Now, the prophet would go on to talk about Abraham's, uh, about God's blessing of Abraham and his plan for the nations and so on in order to multiply the people of God, to bless them as they go about on the earth and so on and so forth. And in verse 4, Isaiah speaks to God's law going forth from his very being, setting his justice for a light of the people's. So God's people are supposed to go back to the teaching and the testimony. They are supposed to go to the ancient paths. They are to see the mighty works of God and take comfort in his providential care. In other words, what Isaiah is asking here in verse 1 is this. Where did you come from? Where did any of us come from? Why are you here Man did not create himself. He is the progeny of God, the God of all things. We are his offspring. That is to say, human existence is predicated on the fact that God is, that God is, he simply is, I am, and his being or nature, which is different from creation, different from man, that provides us for a foundation and an integration point that explains the world without any of the aforementioned dialectical tensions. There's no two-story house in the Christian worldview, by the way. It's a one-level ranch, and it's gorgeous. Maybe 10 acres, you know, nice wooded area, clean well, it's great. And that is, according to Romans 1, by the way, what, what, that ranch is the distinction between the creator and the creation. And we have a whole host of allopathic folks who are going from a different presupposition than that. Dr. Fraudchi, like I like to call him. He's not working from the creator-creation distinction of Romans chapter 1. He's working from, I'm the highest dude on the payroll of the federal government and I get all the interviews that I want. I have this huge portrait in my office that stares at me. It's me. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen that picture. The arrogance. God humbles the proud. But that's it. We have the creator and the creation. What is material, in other words, is intertwined with what is spiritual. All of us are just walking. We're, we're walking dirt. God breathed into us. And that makes us different from the dirt. But don't forget, that's where we're going. So these things need to be kept in mind. There, there's no sacred, secular divide. There's no spirituality up there. And that the, none of that comports with reality down here. My faith really doesn't instruct me on how to be a good nurse. None of that. There's no separation between religion and state either. And morality and state. Now, flip to Colossians 1 if you want to join me there. I'll read it, but certainly you're welcome. 
Colossians chapter 1. We see in Colossians 1 that all things have been created for the express purpose of magnifying Jesus Christ as Lord. Okay? The chair you're sitting in is there to magnify Jesus Christ. Everything is there to magnify Jesus Christ as Lord. All things have been created through him and for him, the text says. And look at verse 17. And he is before all things. This is such a wonderful chapter. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is another way of saying that the created order belongs to Christ because he was and is before it. Just think logically, think all of the things we experience, um, time, he's before that, and, and by the way, that's the origin of man, being the nature of God and God's wisdom and creativity, not Darwinian evolution that drives much of science today, science, sorry, but he was before it, and in Christ, Paul says, all things are held together by his providential word. All things are held together. Now, this is a tough sell in our modern Western culture because it removes all the boasting from man's lying lips. In philosophical terms, God is the thesis. God is the thesis. He's the premise. And everything else that's opposed to him is the antithesis or the antithesis, right? The anti-premise. Darkness, for example, is only such because God is light. Sin is only such because God is holy. Lawlessness is only such because God is the lawgiver, Isaiah tells us. Injustice is only such because God is just. And so on. So you understand. God's the thesis. Everything else is the antithesis. Everything else in rebellion to him, I should hasten to add. But we know that modern man does not wish to bow down to this sort of arrangement, so he must, in his rebellion, actively... Keyword, actively oppose such, in his mind, draconian measures. Submit my practice that I built to the Lordship of Christ. Embrace the world as it is on God's terms. Yeah, right. See, following the lead of Protagoras, he's the, he was the sophist who said, man is the measure of all things. I think it was referenced last, uh, last night. Man is the measure of all things. That sentiment would drive the Renaissance, would drive the enlightenment of which we are still reaping the consequences, not benefits, consequences. And if we are going to bridge the gap between spiritual and medical health, we're going to have to make sure that our categories are squared away. So we start, we begin, the thesis begins with these things. First, the self-attesting comprehensive authority of the scriptures. We have a revelational epistemology. We know things because God has revealed himself in the created order, in his son, in his word. Creation word, incarnate word, and scripturated word. So we start with the self-attesting comprehensive authority of the scriptures. Second, the authority of King Jesus as he rules over the nations, making his enemies a footstool for his feet. Third, the nature and purpose of creation. What is creation? Why did God make it? And how should we respond to that supposition? And fourth, the nature and purpose of man. Know your Bible. Know the authority of Christ. Know the nature and purpose of creation. And you better well know the nature and purpose of man. Because you go into your average church, they're going to just tell you, you are great you are just, you're perfect as you are. And Jesus just comes and he sits next to you and squeezes your knee and says, you don't have to change. You don't have to do the hard work of repentance. It's not grace. See, any breakdown in culture, of any culture, can be traced down to a breakdown of any of those, those presuppositions. If you believe man is an evolved machine, you're going to do medicine a certain way, for example. Christianity sets down the ground rules, and when we discard them or blow them off or simply kick against the ox goad of of God's law word and his specific revelation, when we do that, we immediately create a canyon of irreconcilable dialectics. 
And we end up completely unable to put the conjunction between the word faith and the word medicine. Now, as we go about our gap bridging, I want to take a moment to sort something out. And this is where theology meets philosophy. And that's going to get us to a proper understanding to the relationship of faith and medicine so that we can all walk out here and speak to the young Aristotelian and say, ha ha, you're wrong. And if you've ever told a college student that, you're in for it. Done that a few times at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. Now, I'm indebted to the Dutch philosopher Herman Duiverd for his insight. And uh, I just want to share some stuff from him and build upon it. <clears throat> Duiverd looked at all the problems of Greek metaphysics. He looked at all the problems of Plato and Aristotle and all of these men. And he looked at the problems of Tom- Thomas Aquinas and some of the issues with that grace and, and, and nature t- problem He looked at the problems of modern men. He died in, I think, 71, so modernity in that sense, sort of 18th into the 19th century um, and early 20th century. But he he, he looked at all the problems as man tries to cast off the perceived chains of of, of religion and search for his own revolutionary will, because we're all evolved meat bags just talking and walking and bumping into each other like Adams do. And thank you, uh, Darwin. But he looked at all of these things, and Duerverd, he, he realized that all of these dialectics, all of these in, problems that we see, all of these perceived irreconcilable uh, dialectics and tensions, these, he, he says you can't get anywhere with any of them. You're stuck unless you start with the God of the Bible. It, 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 Christ or chaos, is, those are the options. That's it. As several have observed even more recently. God's law, we know, is the norm of all reality. That is the norm of all reality. And we also know that without, there's no liberty without the law. So it's utterly inescapable. As Dewey Word looked around the world, he saw that there were indeed connections between the thing in itself, the created order, and our experience, our, our sensory experience of those things as rational, thoughtful people who have a heart and a mind and a soul And we look at the world around it. We experience God's world. We're made in his image. He saw that there's a connection there, which is to say that the world is structured by God with certain categories and taxonomies and normative spheres and laws. The world just is what it is because God made it that way. Now, I'm going to go through these quick, but he lists 15 of these things, 15 aspects of reality as we experience it. And you know, you, if you want, you don't have to write them down because I'm going to go quick, but here's what they are. The first one is arithmetic or the quantitative aspect of life. Think numbers and mathematics. The second one is spatial. Think continual space or extension of things like this table occupies a certain space. It can't occupy more than what it is, that sort of thing. Um, the kinematic, the movement or physics, you have Number four, physical, so energy and mass going together. You have forces in the world, things move. Rivers have streams of water and so forth. Um, the fifth aspect, which we're going to come back to, by the way, but it's the biotic, it's the organic, it's, it's life functions, physiology, organisms, and those types of things. Um, the sixth is sensitive or the psychic, that is sense, feeling, emotions. Seventh is analytical, so you have distinction, categories, Um, logic, conceptualizations, we can analyze things, we can theorize about things. Um, Number eight is formative or historical. So there's that aspect of life. There's achievements, right? Uh, This building wasn't here 200 years ago. So there's achievement in history, there's construction, there's um, historical developments in technology. Um, Number nine is lingual. So meaning behind symbols, uh, words, communication. Number 10 is social. So you think of relationships, roles, conventions, norms. Number 11 is the economic, managing wealth, stewarding resources. Number 12, another aspect of life is the aesthetic. So harmony, recreation, beauty, enjoyment, art, music. You look at a sunset on a beach, that's pretty. That's an aesthetic aspect of life. Uh, Number 13, juridical. So there's responsibilities that we all have that we sort of assume we're supposed to function a certain way. And there are um, rights involved in that. 
They're in God-given rights that we have, not because the state gave it to us, because God gave it to us. Um, there's accountability in those regards. Fourteenth is the ethical. So there are, we look around the world, there's such things as self-giving love, generosity, goodness. And lastly, the pistic. Pistis is the Greek word for faith, the faith aspect, uh, commitment, beliefs, faith, aspiration, desire, the concrete things that we hold to, the truths that we just always assume. None of you stopped and had an existential crisis thinking the chair you were going to sit on in here was going to fall apart. We just sort of assumed it was there. That's an aspect of faith. Now, I'm sharing all of these um, aspects of, or modalities of Deweyverd's thinking, um, aspects of life in God's world, these law spheres. The reason I'm sharing it is because all of these things add up to your daily experience, and all of those things are interconnected. And as I said, th- this is an inescapable concept. It's just the way the world works because God made it that way. It structures our world. And guess what? All of you did this stuff yesterday, and all of you did it this morning. Who knew you could go to Starbucks and order a coffee, and you did math because you ordered one coffee with two shots, so you distinction, and you smelt the fresh coffee and thought, that's glory. It's good. And you felt the cup. Like, it's just life. You did it all today, and you're going to do it until the Lord calls you home. But keep in mind that every philosophy that pertains to these aspects comes from a religious motive. All of those fields of scientific inquiry, the mathematics, the biology, the theology, linguistics, think about psychology or think about physiology, all of those aspects, those 15 things all over the place, all of those things are experienced by us and pursued by men and women who will always, without fail, without exception, bring their religious convictions to the table beforehand. Everyone. I call them whiny socialists. They're the college students at George Mason that I deal with from time to time. I haven't been there in a while. But it's like you can't get rid of these categories. And you are a religious person. And you are talking to a religious person. I'm working with the creator-creation distinction. What are you working with? You're the measure of all things. Good luck. Now, no one can simply come to this biotic aspect of man without context and then work backwards to a philosophy. It doesn't happen that way. You and I have religious motives that drive our philosophical world and life view, and all of that informs your view of man's physiology. I don't have to bridge a gap. You, you know that now. I, the gap is gone. We have a nice bridge. It was always there. And if you notice, number five was the biotic aspect of life. The 14th was the ethical. When men apart from Christ try... What men apart from Christ try to do is take any one of those aspects and maximize them to the point where they encroach upon the others. Did any of you the past two years think these measures are wrong because it elevates the biotic aspect of life over against the social aspect of life? No, not really. That's, that's theoretical stuff. We were all doing pre-theoretical stuff. We were just annoyed at the television until we finally, you know, turned it off. But apart from Christ, who is the integration point of all reality, men will elevate one aspect in order to dominate the others. It will always happen. And for our purposes here, the biotic cannot be made supreme. Health can never be divorced from ethics. You cannot do that without destroying the house making the biotic central to all of life, which is, again, what we've seen the past two years. And that's, by the way, quick comment. That's what makes the mandate so egregious to me, by the way. It's a false fallacy all the way through. It's a fallacy of a false choice, sometimes called a black or white fallacy. Do we have to choose between getting the jab and living a God-freeing life? Because that's what we're told. Do this... Or this, and you can't have that, so you have to do this. Do, are our only options getting the vaccine or dying? 
Well, we didn't have it for the first part of 2020 and people were dying. Is human health really a totalitarian, absolutist process of avoiding viral pathogens at all costs, even the cost of a funeral? Why the fallacious reasoning? Stated differently, there must, there must be a thread that runs through all of life that brings all of these aspects together in a meaningful sense. What is the thread? I already told you the answer. It's in Colossians 1. It's not what, it's a who. It is Jesus Christ in his kingdom. Christ, is, Christ in his kingdom is the driving principle that makes everything move. What did Paul say in Athens? In him we move and have our being. He's the driving principle. And listen, the heart of man, don't miss that. The heart of man is the ground motive that makes him who he is. It's not the mind. That's what the existentialists got wrong. That's what Plato got wrong and Aristotle and everybody in between. It's not the mind of the man. It's the heart of the man. Let me explain what I mean. Many people reject Many people today reject the fact that in God and in God alone, we live and move and have our being. As I mentioned before, and this is especially true today as existentialism and all these faulty uh, viewpoints has had its lingering effects upon us, but apart from the Christian worldview, the Christian world and life view, man becomes the center Man becomes the measure of everything. He is the one who drives this train. He gets to call the shots. No pun intended. No, it was intended. I'm kidding. But he gets to make meaning. He gets to impute meaning to the world. This humanism is what tries to make sense of reality, but ultimately cannot. Rebellious men want to be the thesis. I mean, when you stand up front on national TV and say, you question me, you question science. That's a thesis-grabbing moment. Men want to be the thesis, the standard, the meaning makers, but they fall short every single time. And And part of the process is a rejection of the heart and how, I mean, yeah, how easy is it to reject the heart? You just pollute it with a bunch of idols, and then it becomes the swamp up by where I live, which still stinks, by the way. But a rejection of the heart and the enthronement of the mind of man, what we call rationalism, that's the process. But the Bible places the seat of a man's being in his heart. A man's being, your being, everyone in this room, your being and nature and your essence is seated in the heart. Proverbs 4, 23, guard your heart with all diligence for from it flows the springs of life. That's where it's coming from. But we also have the problem of Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? It's the center of a man, but apart from Christ, it's the worst possible thing going on. And if we are to bridge the gap between the spiritual and the material or medical, we simply must deal with reality as demonstrated both in our religious experience of God's created world and the word of the living God. We must, we simply must proceed from the word. Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone. You know this, Jesus quotes it. But by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh. That is, we aren't merely biotic creatures, and we aren't merely spiritual beings, spiritual meaning ethereal or intangible. We are whole creatures. I like to say this. We have a whole gospel for the whole person. Whole gospel, whole body. Being made in God's image, man is given a mind to think, a heart to direct his volition, and hands to labor for the glory of God and his kingdom. What makes you you and what makes me me rests on our image bearing. We are whole creatures, body, soul, and spirit, which means that we have to proceed from this correct thesis, this truth of God's word, and we must actively push against the antithesis. Of all these worlds, I forget who said it yesterday, but in their talk, maybe it was last night, 
there's only two options. Peter Jones calls it oneism or twoism. Monism. Everything's one or twoism. God is the creator, we're the creation. Those are the options. So we need to proceed from those correct assumptions. The correct assumptions about the created order, about the nature of man. Our bodies aren't merely mechanistic gears and parts that can just be switched out like what happens at a car mechanic. Our bodies aren't merely spiritual, metaphysical aspects that float around above us somehow in our physical bodies. Who here can tell me the precise location of where the physical meets the immaterial? Who here? There's not a person smart enough in this room. When can we cut open a body and can we find, where can we find the man's volition? Where can we find his joy, his love, his compassion? Can you put that on an MRI scan? Can you find that anywhere? Where can we find his Holy Spirit regeneration? Can't find it. But if you talk to a man, you can find those things. You see, the wrong antithesis is medicine over here and no medicine over there. That's the wrong antithesis. The wrong antithesis is physical over here, spiritual over there. The wrong antithesis is the upper story of spiritual matters like Bible reading, prayer, and church attendance versus lower story of material things like colonoscopies, LASIK eye surgery, and triple bypass surgeries. That's the wrong antithesis. The correct antithesis, the correct thesis that gives us the antithesis in Scripture is always, get this, here's the antithesis. Genesis says it like this, seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. Driving down through history. And what do we see in the New Testament? Kingdom of God versus kingdom of darkness. That's the antithesis. And we don't have to choose between the you know, 90 essential nutrients or praying to God. We don't have to choose between detoxing the liver or repenting of sin. We don't have to choose between rebounding so I can get my lymphatic system up and running and keep those sewage pipes clean or relying on the Holy Spirit to guide me today. You don't have to choose. We have a comprehensive creation-based medicine for a comprehensive creation-based individual. That's the message of health for all of life. And we can bridge the gap between spiritual health and medical health very easily. And that is done when we embrace the totality of God's truth found in the crucified and risen Savior, who we call Jesus Christ. And we, it's found there, but it's also found when we stop philosophizing poorly, theologizing poorly, stop entertaining the wrong worldview, the wrong antithesis. What is the integrating principle, the principium, the arche in the Greek language, the beginning, the foundation, the starting point, the origin. What is that principle, that integration point that holds all things together, that keeps us from separating them, from messing with them and destroying everybody else in the process? What is that thing? The thing that the Greeks couldn't figure out, the thing Aquinas didn't quite get right, And the thing that modern men just can't seem to get either, what is that? What is the thread that brings all of creation and all of life together? It is Christ Jesus who holds them together. I want to close my time by reminding us that a health for all of life can only rest on a faith for all of life. All of Christ for all of life. That's what we say at Cross and Crown Church in Fauquier County, Northern Virginia. We must advocate and promote a self-responsibility in the arena of health and well-being. And I know that that doesn't sell well. Because we got pastors to do our theology, doctors to do our health, social media to dull us to death, and we farm everything out. It's a hard sell to say you need to take self-responsibility for your health. You do. Do the research. You are made in the image of God. You can't farm that out. You farm it out, you get the past two years. And I know that taking responsibility can be challenging. You might have to admit that you were wrong. 
You might have to admit that maybe you didn't quite think this through all the way. But that's what we're saying. Our, our book, our website is a key in taking that responsibility. We don't have to bridge the gap between Christ and the rest of the, all the stuff. We don't have to do that. Why? Because the Apostle Paul says that all things are yours. All things are yours. Remember, nutrify, detoxify, energize. I want to illustrate this as I land this plane. I didn't land it as quick as Omar did. He just said, all right, I'm done, I guess. But um, I didn't get a chance to meet him. But I want to illustrate some biblical categories to see the connection. As the bread of life, Jesus is nutrition for the whole person. So get your 90 essential nutrients. Drink clean water, eat whole foods, stay away from toxic sludge that gets passed off as food. Get the universal antidote, something that God has given to us in his creation to kill off pathogens, oxygenate the body, and so forth. Chlorine dioxide, miracle mineral solution, clo2.tv, go watch the documentary. Activated sodium chloride. Don't Google it, because ABC News will tell you you're drinking bleach. They don't know what they're talking about. CLO2.TV. CLO numeral two, yeah. Chlorine dioxide, that's what it's found. But So that's, as the bread of life, Jesus is nutrition for the whole person. Just like the soul needs to be purged of sin through repentance and spiritual detox and much of what Chris was saying earlier about forgiveness and those things, great stuff. You have to detox the body. So the physical body needs to be detoxed and purged of toxins and heavy metals and parasites and all the things that's in our food, in our air, in our water. And just as the Holy Spirit energizes us with the joy of the Lord and leads us to guide and guides us into every area of life, so we need the body to have good brain health, exercise, proper sleep, healthy blood, brain, bones, skin, and circulatory and respiratory systems. See, the foundation is, is always Christ. I mean, you know that. Everybody's been saying it from up here. The foundation is Christ. Having a spiritual, a healthy spiritual system that guides you every single day as you serve the once crucified but now risen Lord. You need that. And guess what? I will also add this. We are not waiting around for Jesus to come and do what he has already commanded us to do with the power of his Holy Spirit. Occupy the land, to do business in the land, be busy with the Great Commission, busy with building strong covenant families, strong local assemblies who are involved in every single area of life, outposts of the kingdom, I like to call them. We're supposed to be teaching the nations, starting with our own cities and our own counties, teaching them to obey the law, word of God. Do, do you have a plan for this? Are we pointing people to the holistic gospel for holistic care? We are supposed to be a guide to the blind, but if we're blind, where are we going to lead them? Jesus told them in a pit, right? Earlier this year, I preached to, to a two-week series called The State of the Church, and the first week was on Reformation, and the second was on Revival. Everybody wants those, right? We want Reformation. We want Revival. Give us another one. And what I'm convinced of, and this may step on some toes, we do need Reformation and Revival, but those are not undefined, nebulous terms. We must be after something very, very, very specific, namely, a Reformation according to the standards of God's Word. Take your life, go back to this. And submit yourself to it. A reformation according to the word of God and a revival according to the work of the Holy Spirit. Those two things go hand in hand. The truth of God's word in an age of relativism, sexual confusion, infanticide, and medical tyranny must shine brightly. The work of the Spirit matters. And what is he doing in the world? Well, I think, I think he's showing us the rotten fruit of totalitarian politics, globalism and all this other nonsense. He's showing us also that the integral word of God that permeates all of our existence, if we will only believe it, is in fact our only path forward. It's like, why did we not cry out to God at the beginning of this thing? Why did we give the mic to Fraudchi? 
and Burks. Why, did, why didn't we cry out to God? Let's stop and pray this whole week. Let's fast and pray. Seek the Lord on this plague and maybe get rid of 5G in the process. Let's do that first. <laughs> Instead, it was letting that Yahoo talk. Friends, I want you to be a good a, um, a Berean. Search these things out. Be men of Issachar. Understand the times. The kingdom must advance. Let's pray. Father, we give you the glory and the praise today. Thank you that we could come here and gather like this. I'm so thankful for Dr. Bergeron and the team and everybody who has been involved in putting this on. We, we are grateful for their vision for this, and we pray and ask, uh, Lord, that this would be impactful, that uh, through this, lives would be touched. People would start thinking and, and philosophizing biblically and thinking through the world the way that you would have us think through it. So we ask and pray for your grace for the rest of our time, Lord, for those of us who are traveling in various mediums. God, would you uh, uh, shower us with your, your covenant blessings as we seek to be faithful to you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.